Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me is my co-host, the Floronic Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I have saved up a dollar eighty, and that is just enough for three very cool comic books. Awesome, fantastic! <laughs> I personally am about to enter, uh, uh, or actually, I'm going to go see the Superman Two movie because the comic I'm reading tells me I can go see it right on the if cover. Was... It just orders you go see Superman right. Two. Yeah. If only there was some place where I could relive the excitement of that movie. Mm. Oh well, that's never going to happen. Anyway, <laughs> how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you? I am on top of the moon. We are about to talk about some incredibly good comics that I totally. Like, I knew in my heart that they were good, but, like, I had forgotten how good. Like, when I read them, I'm like, these are freaking amazing! Yes, they so, are. So good. And at the time this episode is released, for you people at home, if you're listening at, when it's released on Sunday afternoon, I hope you enjoy this podcast, because I won't be listening to this podcast. No, folks. On Sunday afternoon, I will be celebrating Father's Day. And what what would I be doing on Father's Day? Good guess, Rob. I am going to be... <laughs> In the movie theater with my family watching Raiders of the Lost Ark on the big screen. Where's that playing on Father's Day? One of our our, our local cinemas. I don't know if – I didn't look into the details of my wife booked it all. I don't know if it's a a local – you know, uh, theater old movie thing, or whether it's an, a network chain, but it's our, I think our CMX theater, which is, uh, oh, I can't remember who used to own CMX. Either way, yeah, they're showing Raiders of the Lost Ark on the big screen on oh, Sunday. Wow. So that's, that's, that's one of my Father's Day presents. That's awesome. Yeah. Gee, no, I don't think they're doing that around here because I, or maybe I just wasn't invited because I'm not a father. I don't know. It's because sort of <laughs> you've seen it too many times. You've been blocked. Yeah, yeah they're like, all right, enough. Just that's, stop. It's too many times. That guy who always cheers with the air horn when Belloc dies. <laughs> It's that's wonders. awesome. That's a great. That's a great Father's Day trip. Uh, undoubtedly, I am so jazzed about this. So yes, but folks, you don't get to go to the movie. Terribly sorry if you sneak in. That's a little creepy. But either way, you get to enjoy us talking about these amazing comics, which are Justice League of America number one ninety five, one ninety six, and one ninety seven. Can anyone say Jerry Conway and George Perez? Mm. Hmm. I think you can. 
Ah, oh, so good. But before we get into this, we should probably take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What'd you bring this time, buddy? Now, I was hoping that uh, there had been a reprint collection of these particular comics, but I don't think any of the DC Justice League trades have gotten to these issues yet. I'm pretty sure it's in one of the Perez ones, but I don't think it's on InStock Trades right now. All right, okay. Well, cl- so the closest I could get via Justice League was the Bronze Age Justice League Omnibus Hardcover Volume 2, uh, which collects Justice League's numbers 114 through 146, mm. uh, written by Lynn Wein, Jerry Conway, Martin Pascoe, Carrie Bates, a real, you know, uh, murderer's row of Justice League writers. The artist is Dick Dillon. That's it. Dick Dillon. Every issue. That's Dick awesome. Dillon. <laughs> Amazing. Um, 776 pages. Jeez. Yeah, in hardcover. The normal price is $125. The in-stock of trades price is $72.50. That is 42% off. It features a brand new cover by Carl Kershaw of the classic JLA standing there looking awesome. So uh, it is an amazing – again, while it's not covering the issues we're going to talk about – it's still covering some of the best Justice League comics ever done. So this is an awesome collection. So he said it's seventy-two fifty. That's forty-two percent off. Justice League of America Bronze Age Omnibus Hardcover Volume Two. Very cool. Well, I uh, I picked something. I kind of I took Rob's approach and uh, usually apropos of nothing. So I, I, I picked something that I'm enjoying currently. But I sort of backdoored my way into it. I picked uh, Deathstroke the Terminator, Trade Paperback Volume 1, Assassins. Now, this collects the Deathstroke the Terminator series from the 1990s, issues 1 through 9, and New Titans number 70. So this is right uh, after the the initial run of Titans Hunt was wrapping up, and Deathstroke became very popular and got his own series. Sort of, uh, they were really trying to uh, cash in on the popularity of Punisher and things like that. Now, the the way I back into it is that George Perez is a co-creator of Deathstroke. But for me, we covered him on a recent Who's Who episode, and so that I immediately jumped and went back and started rereading some of these issues, and I'm just loving it. It's so good. Written by Marv Wolfman, he was completely re-energized at this point because Marv had gone through a period of kind of writer's block, but at this point he was totally back on point. It's a great run of comics. Uh, Steve Irwin is the artist. Uh, the covers were all by Mike Zeck, which again they're really leaning into that mm. Punisher stuff, and uh, it's it's really a lot of fun. So uh, definitely should check it out. Deathstroke the Terminator, Trade Paperback, Volume 1, 264 pages, full color. Normally it retails for $19.99. You can get it for 42% off. It's only $11.59, which is a hell of a price, especially for these fun 90s comics that, again, I'm enjoying the heck out of. So for these and all your collected editions needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, Rob, uh, you know I, I came to the Justice League later. So I came to the Justice League with the Justice League Detroit era. That was my first ongoing collecting of, of Justice League. I went back and backfilled you know, my whole collection, but uh, I, I probably didn't read these issues until I had already been a collector for 10, 15 years at that point. You probably read these off the stands. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely true. Justice League, uh, after Super Friends, Justice League was probably the first comic book that I ever bought regularly. So I bought all these issues at the time. And in fact, the copy I have of number 196 is a mountain comic. And it oh. is and it's the same comic that I bought off the stands in 1981. It's the exact same copy. Oh, that's cool. And this era of Justice League, basically right around 
185 when Perez took over the art through around 220, 225. I would say to me that's like are my favorite, not just my favorite Justice League comics, but my favorite comics of all time. Because, of course, that also features JLA number 200, the greatest publication in the history of Western civilization. <laughs> uh, and, like, to me, it's like Conway was just burnt. Even though he'd been doing the book for almost three years by that point, I, I hate to say this. I feel like he was almost kind of re-energized by having Perez doing his stuff. And I think he just kicked it into overdrive. And, and so all these issues, and especially if I want to narrow it even further, like 189 through 200, I think is like the best year of Justice League ever done. And so when I, when we talked about what show we wanted to do, I was like, I want to talk about these because this is like, in podcasting terms, this is like a layup. This is so mm-hmm. easy to talk about because I love these books so completely. And we've already covered the 189, that the, or maybe it was 184, whichever one's the dark side. We did JLA that. Front. We did number 200. We've covered a lot of books we, we did, did uh, Crisis on Earth Prime. Yeah, we've done yeah, those too. We did 192 to 193, which is the Red Tornado story. We've done the Starro story. We've we've picked a lot of books from this era, but we haven't we haven't gone around to this one. Amazingly enough, even though Firestorm features very heavily in it, I was shocked. You know, when, when you suggested doing it, I started reading. I'm like, oh, this will be fun. And then I was like, oh no, we've done this before. And I went back and looked. And I'm like, in eight years of podcasting, how have we never done this story? That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yep. Now I'm curious because you know, again, I came to this later. Sometimes in life, we don't know we, – we, we don't realize how good we've got it at, at a certain time. So did you realize back in 1981 that you were sort of living in a golden age of the JLA? Did you be like, oh my gosh, this is the best JLA ever? Or, or, or was it just, oh, it's the new issue? I, I think I was more that. Because, I, I mean, you didn't, you didn't get the sense of how long things last. I mean, like, I, I was so thrilled that Perez was doing it and inked by uh, John Beatty, uh, who I mm-hmm. think is one of his best inkers, unsung inkers of George Perez. Uh, I certainly knew JLA number 200 was really something special. But, but then Perez was already off the book. That was his final right, issue. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I wish it had – he really only did the book for basically a year and change. And then it moved over to Don Heck, and then there was some good stuff there. And there was, of course, the Crisis on Earth Prime story that we, uh, that we, uh, the one with the All Star Squadron that we've covered, which was really good. But no, I was, I was just remember thinking, boy, these are really great comics. But I always thought all comics were great at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was stunned going back and reading these. First of all, the art, obviously, Perez was just so much at the top of his game. Yep. I mean, this stuff is stunning. You talk about the inking. We'll get into that when we get into the individual issues because you've got different art, slightly different art on each issue because you've got different anchors and then some other stuff going on. Um, but you look at what Perez is turning out here and then you look across the street, if you will. I, he was also doing New Teen Titans at the same time. He, uh, In fact, the same months these published, New Teen Titans number 12 through 14 came out. Amazing. Which are the issues like the Clash of the Titans issues and where the Doom Patrol comes back, which are you know classic issues, or as Rob would say, classic issues that everyone remembers. And yet he was doing both of these at the same time. I mean, that's insane, that workload he must have been doing. Unless he, unless he was working ahead and banking stuff somehow, I don't know. I, that's that's like a Kirby esque workload, uh, and, yeah. and I mean it's not even like it. Not only is he doing two books, he's doing two books with dozens of characters, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, at the level of detail he performs. I mean, he doesn't yeah. do anything half ass either. Nope. Man, now I read these in, I, and I know your your favorite thing in the world is uh, digital comics. Reading them in panel by panel mode, <laughs> I know you love that, uh, but I did, and it just because you know when you read the page, it's like wow, that was great. But when you read it just one panel at a time, you're like. Look at all the crap Perez shoved into this panel. This is amazing. You know, on a page that has eight panels, each one of them is practically a piece of art that would have been worthy of a splash page by itself. So I absolutely loved reading it in panel mode and um, just blew me away. And um, 
I mean, his artwork really deserves to be celebrated in that format. So I highly recommend anyone – when I read it specifically, I read it on the DC Universe app. Uh, so I recommend if you, ha- if you have a subscription to the DC Universe app, which is great right now, and hopefully it will stay around. I don't know. Um, the, the, these issues are available there, and they are super fun to read in that format. Sounds good. So I guess we should go ahead and get into it. So we're going to do recaps, and then uh, it seems to make sense to maybe recap all three at the same time and then talk about them individually, or do you want to stop in between issues? Uh, we could do it all at once if you want. Either yeah, way, it's just, fine, yeah. I think that's fine, because a lot of it blurs together. So. Right. Okay. Uh, right. I, I will say that this right off, I, I have to, I kind of thought about them. This is probably my all-time favorite JLA-JSA team-up. That was done. Oh. It was done every year, but I was thinking about all the other ones, and maybe the one with All Star Squadron and JSA that we've say, covered. Crisis on Earth Prime is, is oh, I, even, even though the art's not as good. I love the story. I, Part of it is yeah. nostalgia goggles. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I think I have to give it the nod simply because Aquaman features so heavily in it, and he generally wasn't in a lot of these JLA JSA team ups. Hey, he get, he gets a panel in these three issues. Yes. Come on. Yeah, he gets a single panel, uh, and it does have the All Star Squadron, and of course, there are two issues of that of that crossover drawn by Jerry Ordway, which is mm-hmm. fantastic. But so I think I'd maybe give that one the slight nod. But in terms of um, this is the second favorite. I just I love this team up, uh, this three issue storyline so completely. So yeah, uh, as we talked about, it starts in Justice League of America number one ninety five, uh, which was on sale July 9th, nineteen eighty one. The story is called Targets on Two Worlds by Jerry Conway, George Perez, and John Beatty. We're going to talk about the cover first of all by, by Perez, which is uh, like a posterized poster type cover of all the villains of the members of the Secret Society of Supervillains standing in front of a kind of image bank, and they are crossing off members of the JLA and the JSA as they have presumably been defeated. So we see on this cover, you've got Cheetah, Ragdoll, Signalman, The Mist, The Monocle, Killer Frost, Brainwave, Psycho Pirate, and Floronic Man. Not exactly heavy hitters, but we'll get to that right. in a moment. <laughs> and we see, according to this, that they've already defeated Hawkman Flash, Adam Batman, and a presumably Black Canary with Superman, Our Man, Wonder Woman, Firestorm, and Johnny Thunder. That one will be easy. Uh, left to go. So it's it, – what do you think of this and, cover? And it's Killer Frost crossing people off. Yes, Which right. is great because, yeah. I mean, as a Firestorm fan, you know, this cover speaks to me especially because Killer Frost is so – I mean, she is square in the middle. Yep. She's obviously got a place of prominence. She's the one Xing everyone off. Oh, it's so good. It is a gorgeous cover. It's also at sort of almost – Almost a 1960s Batman, ang- um, you know, bad guy hideout angle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got the 45 degree angle because you know it's wonky at the bad guy's place, and uh, I think it's gorgeous. And of course, it's illustrated beautifully and stunning. But you know, I, I, like at this point, when I first read this issue, I don't know that I had ever seen uh, Ragdoll. I, I don't think I'd ever seen Signalman, and I doubt I had seen The Mist. Now I had seen Braidwave and in, in like the All Star Comics, um, the Super Squad stuff, right. and Cheetah. But actually, I probably hadn't seen Floronic Man either. So a lot of this is like, who are these guys? Mm-hmm. Which and it and because it's Perez drawing them, it's like I want to know more. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we often joke when we do Who's Who about Perez designs a costume. And it looks great, and no one can draw it afterwards. Well, Signalman is kind of the reverse. Someone designed a completely ridiculous costume, but under Perez's pencils, it looks really cool. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that. There's a segment that I'm going to get to that, uh, that that speaks to that very thing. So, yeah, so the story is Targus on Two Worlds. It's by Jerry Conway, George Perez, John Beatty. I mentioned Ben Oda, Carl Gafford doing the colors, and the editor is Lynn Wein. 
uh, we find various supervillains, the Monocle, the Signal Man, and the Cheetah, being approached by other supervillains, Killer Frost, and some mysterious shadowed figure about joining the Secret Society of Supervillains, ah, open enrollment day. The, cre- <laughs> the, the creepy Flash villain Ragdoll is rescued from a botched bank robbery by the Monocle and the Psycho Pirate, and Killer Frost, the Cheetah, and Signal Man drag Jason Woodrow, a.k.a. the Floronic Man, a.k.a. the Plant Master, into their scheme as well. We find yet another villain, The Mist, and how he deals with some former accomplices who have done him wrong, basically by murdering them. Uh, the, Mist may be, <laughs> the Mist may be a pretty goofy villain, but he's hardcore. The Earth-1 villains meet up with another villain, Brainwave, and he teleports them all to Earth-2, where they meet up with the other bad guys and meet their leader, the Ultra-Humanite. He explains to them his cockamamie theory that is that if you remove certain heroes from each of the two worlds, it will throw the cosmic balance out of whack, causing the permanent removal of all the heroes from one of the worlds. Meanwhile, the JLA and the JSA are having their annual get-together at the satellite with the Atom telling bad jokes, Firestorm hitting on Power Girl, can't blame a guy for trying, and Batman <laughs> happy to see his quasi-daughter, the Huntress. Mm. All the JLA are attendants, even former members like Green Arrow, which how can we miss you if you won't leave? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, after all the heroes clear out, Black Canary is left behind on monitor duty. So lost in her reveries, she doesn't notice that the Mist has sneaked onto the satellite where he sucker punches her, knocking her out. The Monocle and the Cheetah get the drop on the Earth to Hawkman and Wonder Woman, respectively, and all three heroes are kidnapped and taken to the Secret Society of Supervillains headquarters as per the plan. We find that the Ultra Humanite has been lying about this part of the plan. He knows full well which Earth will be deheroized to be continued. Deheroized a word? No, I just made that up. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, I'll take us from here, uh, at least for the next issue. Justice League of America, number 196, on the shelves, August 9th, 1981. Uh, talking about the cover, you've got Ultra Humanite. He is standing triumphant over the prone bodies of Superman of Earth 2, Our Man, Jay Garrick the Flash, Batman of Earth 1, The Atom of Earth 1, Johnny Thunder, and Firestorm. So what do you think of this cover? I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I remember specifically where I was, the new stand I bought this on, and seeing this on seeing this on the stand, and just be, I could not have been more excited. And the copy I have is beaten to hell, but I would never trade it in for a million years because it has been with me all of these years. And this is the Mountain comic, you this said, This is right? the Mountain comic. Okay, I, yep. I literally remember what new stand I was at when I saw this. And not only that, it's an amazing cover. Just seeing all the jail layers unconscious. Prez was great at that. He was great at all the heroes fallen kind of thing. And then you've got Ultra Humanite looking like he's about to, uh, you know, like just against like sucker punch Superman. Oh, yeah. Uh, and by the way, I should have mentioned it's Perez and Giordano. I should have yes. said that. Yeah. Uh, and the cover copy is, It's war between the Secret Society of Supervillains and the Justice League of America, featuring the All-Star Justice Society. And guess who comes out the winner? That's a lot of cover copy. But I don't mind. Hmm. It, it almost doesn't feel crowded because it's all sectioned at the top third. And, uh, yeah, Ultra Humanite just look, looks like he's going to do a Savage 8 beating on Superman of Earth 2. It looks, it looks gonna, like it's going to be rough. So, yeah, super fun cover. Now, one thing I – well, I guess we'll talk about this later in the commentary. But one thing I did notice is the colorists, or maybe it's Perez in the inking, have changed Our Man's hood. Instead of being yellow with black patches, sort of like Batman's cowl is blue with black patches, uh, they've made his cowl all black, which is uh, an interesting look, and I think it looks pretty cool. Yes, I do. I do too. Yep. All right, so the story is Countdown to Crisis. 
by Jerry Conway, George Perez, and Romeo Tangal. So different inker on this one. Um, let's see. Um, and all three issues do look amazing, but for me, my money, this particular issue is the standout one of the three because of the inking. But we'll talk more about that later. So we're continuing from last issue. We have the secret society of supervillains pulling off their plot to kidnap specific members of the JLA and JSA. Having already captured Wonder Woman of Earth 1, Hawkman of Earth 2, and Black Canary of Earth both, uh, they're placed. In, they're all placed in glass tubes. You're supposed to laugh at my Earth both, but anyway, thanks for that. <laughs> they're all placed in these glass tubes that are sort of like back to tanks, but without any liquid. And uh, they're there until the other heroes needed for the plane can also be kidnapped. The next hero on the list is Hawkman. Uh, I'm sorry, I misread that. The next hero on the list is Our Man, and we find him being attacked by the psycho pirate out in public in Our Man's civilian identity of Rex Tyler. The psycho pirate projects his emotions onto a giant movie screen, trying to use them on Our Man, and his sequence is wonderfully executed by George Perez, of course. And then the pirate finally gets the drop on Our Man and takes him back to the base. Cut to Earth-1, where we find the Dark Knight detective on patrol. He's attacked by the signal man who turns the citizens of Gotham against him. Using Batman's only weakness, he can't hurt innocent citizens. The same fate befalls Jay Garrick the Flash by Ragdoll, but before going down, Jay proves he is an ultimate badass. Then uh, the Atom on Earth-1 is bested by the Floronic Man, and Ray Palmer's downfall is a heavy dose of pollen. Interestingly enough, I have the same weakness as Ray. Later, Brainwave outthinks Johnny Thunder, which really shouldn't be that hard, but Brainwave did it especially in a cool way, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And Superman of Earth 2 is defeated by a team of gorillas, Ultra Humanite himself, and an aerosol can of kryptonite. And the most importantly to me, we have a great scene with Firestorm. It starts off as all good Firestorm stories begin, with Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein's evening being horribly interrupted and frustrated on both their parts. Uh, one atomic fusion later, Firestorm is battling Killer Frost, and Frost also outsmarts the nuclear man by bringing down the roof on top of his head. Back at the bad guy lair on Earth 2, all the heroes are then placed into Ultra Humanite's machine, and it spins faster and faster until it finally disappears into limbo. To be continued. And my personal thanks to Rob for letting me borrow and chop up and cut apart uh, the summary he wrote. So thank you for that. Well done. Well done. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and then uh, we got book three, which is JLA 197, which was on sale September 10th, 1981. The story is Crisis in Limbo by, of course, Jerry Conway, George Perez, Keith Pollard doing some of the pencils, uh, and Romeo Tangao, and then Ben Oda, Carl Gafford, and Len Wein. Continue from last issue, of course, we watched the Secret Society of Supervillains gloat as they transport the kidnapped members of the JLA and the JSA into another dimension. After the heroes disappear, the desired-for effect happens, and both worlds experience a worldwide but momentary reality shift. Another reason why it would be absolutely horrifying and terrifying to live on either of these worlds, since stuff like this seems to happen every couple of days. Anyway, <laughs> the ultra-humanite checks his figures, and presto, the heroes of Earth 2 are gone. While he, the Monocle, the Mist, Brainwave, Psycho Pirate, and Ragdoll gloat, the Earth-1 villains start to think that this was going to be the result all along, and they have been hoodwinked. Of course, they are exactly right. And now that they are no longer needed, Ultra Humanite beans them back to Earth-1. What an ungrateful little monkey. The Earth-1 villains are furious at the treachery, and they hatch a plan. They lay in wait for Green Lantern and get the drop on him just as he's about to use the JLA transporter. They use him to beam to the satellite where they subdue the elongated man and use the satellite to beam themselves to the interdimensional limbo where the kidnapped heroes were sent. They get Cheetah all worked up, so she attacks Wonder Woman in a blind rage, smashing the tube she's encased in, freeing all the heroes. Unfortunately, the villains didn't really have an exit strategy, and they're easily defeated by the JLA and JSA <laughs> in return. Soon after, the Earth 2 heroes all meet and ask why the Ultra Humanite wanted them there. 
He says he didn't, and the confusion is broken when they learn who it was who called the mayor, called them there for real, the JLA and the JSA. The heroes make quick work of the bad guys. The Flash in particular knocks Ragdoll around like, well, a Ragdoll, and throw them all into the transporter beam jury-rigged by Batman, the Atom, and Wonder Woman. Superman ends the discussion with knocking Ultra Humanite into the beam, transporting them all into the same limbo that the heroes were stranded in. The JLAers return to the satellite to a bewildered Green Lantern and Elongated Man, while all the villains chase after the Ultra Humanite in an unusually comical ending. And that is the wrap-up to this amazing three-part story. Oh, it's so good. And you know what goes through my mind reading this, too, is uh, even though we're four years before Crisis... It looks a lot like Crisis again because it's you know peak Perez, right? And to me, uh, personally, uh, the look and feel of Crisis is peak DC. That's to me that is what the DC universe will always look like is how it looked like in Crisis. And I realize a lot of people say I'm an old fogey, I need to move on. Well, tough. That's me. And so seeing this, it's almost like wow, it's like a little piece of that Crisis look that I love so much, and it just feels so right. I mean, there's goofy as heck crap in this thing. Ultra Humanites plan, capture five heroes from each Earth, and it causes all the heroes to disappear from Earth too. Well, what? Yeah, it I mean, makes it's, no it's, sense. <laughs> right. It, it, it boils down to that old definition of cuz comics, you know? <laughs> I don't care. It's so beautifully illustrated. I just go with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it is amazing. I mean, everything, like, just every sequence about this, I just think is so perfectly executed. I love the opening. I mean, we, uh, we hinted at this at the top of the show, but, like, the lineup that Jerry Conway uses for the Secret Society supervillains. Mm-hmm. Killer Frost aside, this is really like a B and C level team. I mean, actually, I'm going to make you f- think about this. Killer Frost at this point is a B level, C level character. Um, interestingly enough, I went back and checked. Before this, she really only had two appearances in Firestorm number three, oh, okay. which, was can- right. which was canceled, by the way. And then DC Comics presents number 17, which was just basically a tease to launch. Um, Firestorm back into the DC universe after being gone for a while. So really, she's only had, now she was appeared in flashbacks, so she gets technically more credits, but that's really all she appeared in. So, uh, I mean, she was drawn by Al Milgram and then Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. I mean, that's some, that's some good cred, but still, she's a BRC level character too at this point. All right, fair. Yeah, that's true. This is before Fury of Firestorm really took off. So, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and this the, this goes back to a thing that I think it was Alan Moore that said, or maybe not Alan Moore, who knows, but somebody said one of the, the sad parts about when, when a, a universe decides to kill off all other characters is you're robbing some potential writer of mm-hmm. really finding something amazing with this character. And like I said, a lot of these guys are not big-level villains, but they're done so effectively here that they look really cool. Of course, it's partly they're drawn by Perez, which helps. Right. Uh, but, like, I mean, it's just, like, there is, like, Killer Frost, this opening sequence with her and the, the thing with the signal man where she, she catches up to the signal man is really cool. I mean, all these little vignettes of everybody. The psycho pirate, when he escapes prison, is a great sequence where he mm-hmm. scares the guard and he steals his key and stuff like that. And, like, it's, these guys, like, this, this scene where they rescue the psycho pirate from the, the, the prison yard and mm-hmm. the monocle comes in on his helicopter, and he's right. blasting people. He looks friggin' cool, and he's the he's monocle for Pete's sakes. Yeah, he's dangling off of the typical rope ladder you always see in the movies from the from the helicopter. And yeah, he's taking out prison guards and big lights and everything. And it's just done in these like six little tiny vertical panels. But it's an awesome action scene. Now, again, I read it in panel mode. So they were huge panels when I was reading. I didn't even know there were six little panels until I got done with the page. But it's done fantastically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the sequence with Ragdoll is gr- – Ragdoll is straight up creepy. 
is a straight he, well, up creepy character. Yes. Yeah. And that uh, robbery idea was actually really clever, I think, to have himself. He, he had himself shipped in a box. Right, because he's like box. triple jointed. Yep. So he folds himself up like, you know, the like, like the rubber man or whatever, folds himself up in a box, ships himself to the bank. So the bank manager takes him into the takes the box into the back room to open it by himself. And out pops Ragdoll with a gun. Ragdoll with a gun. Pretty clever idea, actually. And part of it is he's so goofy looking and intermingled with how brutal he is because he's a flat out killer. And there's, yes. there's this sequence where the, the prison guard, he says, he's distracted. Now's my chance. And Ragdoll just shoots the guy dead. Yep. And then escapes. I love the um the sequence where we see the hand of the ultra humanite grabbing mm-hmm. onto the and he turns on the uh the rear view mirror and he's like psycho power would deal with them. I love that little hint because you're like, who the hell is that guy with the little fairy hand? You don't see that. And then Psycho Pirate makes these two sets of cop cars smash into each other just by staring at them. And all those guys presumably die because right. we see the car crash and it's pretty brutal. And you see Ragdoll and he's like, Nice. So he's like, yeah. guys are really friggin' well- mean. And, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the like the Bronze Age, Golden Age, so, uh, Silver Age version of Ragdoll, because uh, you might be more familiar with him with like Secret Six or whatever, where he looks like kind of a guy who's stitched together. No, he he looks straight up like Raggedy Andy, right? right. Which is what makes it so terrifying. Uh, he just looks just like that with his evil, evil, maniacal smile and eyes. Oh, it's so creepy. And good usage of Psycho Pirate. Like, Psycho Pirate's a kind of character. Like, again, he's functional in, in Crisis because of what he needs to do, but. Uh, I always have a hard time thinking of how he's going to function as a supervillain. So I'm like, he can affect no emotions. Okay. Okay. What are you going to do with that? Well, they, they use him so effectively here. Like you said, the crashing of the police cars. I'm like, wow, I never would have thought of that in a million years. That's really good. Yeah. I love all the sequences. And then they said the part that I was getting to was the, the part with the mist where we find that the mist has uh, replaced the, the chauffeur of his former associates and he decides to get revenge on them. And uh, he locks his two former associates in the back of the limo with their girlfriends or their wives, and then pilots the car straight off a cliff. And right. then, of course, because he's the mist, he just disappears off of, you know, he just fades away. But I mean, again, it's like the level of brutality that these guys are showing. And this guy's the mist, you know, mm-hmm. the myth. He's really not that imposing a villain. But that sequence is really frightening where he turns around and he's got the, the limo driver's cap on. And he's like, and Benny and Roscoe, my faithful henchman, who left me to face prison while they disappeared with the proceeds of our last robbery. Like, that's a great sequence. And then the girls try to escape and they find that the, that the, uh, the doors are locked from the outside and they can't escape. And they, they are screaming to their deaths until the car plummets and bursts into flames. It's amazing. It's an amazing well, sequence. Imagine if you walked um, – <clears throat> forgive me. Imagine if you walked into this DC comic not knowing anything about DC villains or anything, right? Like completely cold. These characters would seem as dangerous as the Joker or Lex yes. Luthor because yep. they're that yep. effective in what they're doing. You know, uh, Signal Man does a, a re- there's a neat thing where he, he basically escapes from a, a, a hospital. Now, he doesn't do anything incredibly evil at this point, but uh, Perez puts this amazing art detail in there I love. He's escaping from St. Ignatius uh, Loya, I guess is how you say it, hospital. Uh, yeah, Ignatius sl- Loyola, yeah. Yep, he slides down the sign. Uh, this this neon sign with it there it says that name of the hospital and he's on the way down he knocks out certain letters so it now it just spells out signal right which <laughs> is really clever by Perez I love that bit I never would have caught that and then the cheetah scene is also incredibly violent like these this gang of guys you know they they they, they have some really nasty activities on their mind when they jump her in an alley and they're planning to take advantage of her and she. I'm pretty sure she kills them. I mean, she just slices them to pieces. It's totally vicious and totally awesome for that. I got to talk about uh, Killer Frost for a second. Yeah, no surprises, man. Um, 
So one of the things I love about this is at the beginning of the issue, she's already a member of the Secret Society of Supervillains. She's part of the recruitment drive, right? Now, we never actually saw her join the Secret Society of Supervillains because that series ended three years before this. And so uh, I love the idea that uh, sort of we walk in with in media res, you know, like where she's already in the team. I Mm -hmm. love that aspect. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, so she's used here in this story as sort of an important – character early on who is being used in the development of all of this. And then a few years later, she actually is pretty important in Crisis too as far as in the beginning. They make a big deal about Psycho Pirate and Firestorm and Harbinger going to get Killer Frost. I don't know if you remember that in Crisis number one. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, it's, it's, I don't think she's there because she's important. I think it's really there. It's more of a testament to Firestorm at this point because Firestorm was popular and he was sort of on the rise and that's why they use her here and that's why they use her in Crisis. But, you know, it's sort of ironic that nowadays it's shoes on the other foot now. I think Killer Frost is probably more popular than Firestorm at this point now, <laughs> which is sad. But um, it, it just it's, it's really nice to see her in, in high-profile places because she is a fantastic character. And, that, and this particular incarnation, too, this dress it just looks awesome. I, it's, another fun thing is that aside from the pinup, uh, which we will talk about before we finish oh, this issue, yeah. the heroes do not show up until page 18 of this story, that. which is really cool because you don't really miss them. The, 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 all these little vignettes with all the villains are so well executed, no pun intended, that it doesn't really matter <laughs> that you don't see all the heroes until page 18. And then when we do get them, I lo- I, I've mentioned to you in previous episodes, I'm a sucker for superheroes like being social together. Mm-hmm. I love all that. So seeing them at the satellite and eating like punch and cookies. I love that. You see Robin, the Earth 2 Robin, which almost never showed up at these things. Uh, Green Arrow is there and he's being his typical dickish self. He's like, Alan, is- Alan Scott's on a diet. Alan Scott's on a diet. <laughs> Green Arrow says that this almost makes me wish I, sorry, I quit the league. Almost. Well, nobody asked you to show up, <laughs> Oliver. Uh, we get Aquaman's one and only appearance in this story where he's yep. like, well, I guess we can finally relax. Ready? For once, our animal reunion has gone off without some sort of hitch. And, of course, <laughs> you know, yeah, we know how wrong he's going to be. Uh, but that's, that's like a, it, it, again, it's really cool that it, it, it's 18 pages in to this, like, 22-page comic, and you're not annoyed by that. That, that right. you don't get the heroes yeah. until the very, very end of the book. I love it. I, and I don't know how often that was done in comics back then where you got the, the antagonist being the star of the sh- issue, basically, you know? And I, I could have gone the whole issue without seeing the Justice League. That would have been just fine. Uh, they do it all the time nowadays where you get a villain, hot spotlight, or whatever. But I thought it was really strange and wonderful. And, and that panel with uh, Batman and Huntress. When the JLA, when you finally see the JLA, is so touching because you know her dad had just died recently, and so she her her emotions are running high, and seeing the other Batman, her what she calls Uncle Bruce, I think, or something like that, yeah, yeah. is uh, is so touching. And again, I was reading it by panel by panel mode, so that panel was the full size of a page at least, and it was just like oh, I, all the emotion in there, and it just really got because even Robin looks sort of like straight face because like maybe he's having a hard time seeing Batman after losing his partner. I love that Power Girl snubs Firestorm because if you remember the. Pre- Previous JLA JSA crossover was uh, was the, new the gods. one, yeah, the new gods one where they first met, and they were sort of uh, they were on the path of hooking up there at that point. And and you know, by the way, this this is a line I recommend any man use, uh, where you say you want to see some etchings. <laughs> is what Firestorm asks Power Girl. What the hell is he even implying? I don't get where he's going with that. You know, you don't know what that phrase is. What that means? No, no. that was an old timey phrase where it was basically you're asking a woman to come up and look at like some nude paintings. 
oh my god, are you serious? Yeah, that's what that was supposed to mean. It was like it was <laughs> it was a polite way of saying let's go up and have sex because we're gonna look at some erotic art together. That is such a Ronnie Raymond thing to do. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> I I never heard of it until I read this comic book and then I looked it up. I was like, oh, what was that? Because I've seen it in I heard the phrase in TV shows and stuff like that. Like it was kind of a, th- a little more had a little more currency back mm-hmm. then. Uh, and so yeah, but that's that's what that means. That is crazy. Uh, I do have, before we talk about the pinup, I got to talk about one more of the battles. Um, well, in general, by the way, the battles are like the villains win in each one of these fights because they need to to move the story forward. It's like I read it and I go, you know, normally the superheroes always win, so I don't know. Like this, it it feels a little like like they let the villains win, sort of thing, uh, it, from a writing perspective because you're so used to hearing the seeing the heroes win. But in you know in real life, it's just as likely the bad guys would win. Either way, the the Wonder Woman battle with Cheetah really stood out to me. There, Wonder Woman's flying around on the outside of her um, invisible jet, swinging her lasso, and swings at Cheetah and misses, and ends up lassoing the top of the uh, Washington Monument. And like a like like a I don't know a weed whacker that's got caught up in something, you know, it ties her up against the Washington Monument, and I just thought that was so cool and effective because I could visualize all of it happening. And uh, where she gets you know sucked up in the spin, and that was I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's all it's all really well done. I I know what you're saying that yeah, normally Cheetah wouldn't be able to defeat Wonder Woman in basically one page, but mm-hmm. yeah, for the for the story, she gets the drop on her. A lot of it is these heroes are getting shocked by this sudden appearance of the villain, and then they get temporarily uh, you know knocked out. So I mean, and again, right. and then they're they're put in this little stasis chamber by the ultra humanite and that the, the story ends with him admitting in his thought balloon that he knows exactly how his plan is going to work out, but he can't tell anybody that because then they wouldn't go along with it. Exactly. So the pinup. Yes. And I do mean capital the yeah. pinup. Wow. Uh, this is the uh, first issue of the DC line with the 60 cent price tag. And oh, okay. they were big on giving you extra pages. That was like their selling point. It was like, yeah, you're paying more, but you're getting more pages. And I think in the beginning they were still trying to kind of catch people up in, in, in telling the longer story. So they had a lot of bonus material. And here they just let George Perez loose on a two on a double page spread pinup of the JLA and the JSA. And you know you've talked about in uh, issues of Who's Who that you were like a little nerdlinger with your lists of like <laughs> you know what characters belonged on what planet yes. stuff like that. Yes. I I loved pinups of the groups all together and sort of seeing the differences between the Earths because, of course, they're standing here and they're they're opposite each other. And so you've got Superman parallel to Superman, Wonder Woman to Wonder Woman, Batman to Robin. But then you've got Martian Manhunter to Dr. Fate or Aquaman to Wildcat. So I love that it was underscoring the differences uh, and the similarities between the two sets of groups. And, of course, when you're being drawn by George Perez, I believe it's inked by Perez, too. I'm not sure that I don't see another inker credited here. Yeah. They just look as amazing as they're ever going to look. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. And, and it almost makes Snapper Car and Johnny Thunder look cool. Almost. Uh, in the way they're they're portrayed there. Yeah, it is it is absolutely stunning. Ugh. And, and I've, I remember I stumbled across this. Before, without even realizing it was in the issue, I, that would have been in my long boxes. I found this, you know, on the internet in, I don't know, 97, 98, you know, when I was first getting a computer with Windows and all that. And this was this was my desktop at some point, I know for weeks, because I just loved it so much. Because the JSA has always had a whole real special place in my heart. The earliest JSA issues I, I fell in love with were these crossovers and then the Super Squad stuff in the 70s that I loved so very much. And this is just, it's a gorgeous piece. I love it so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, it's, it's just so wonderful. And, Hawkman, Hawk Girl there together, 
everybody looks so cool. So yeah, it's a, and it's a, you know great for an extra ten cents. I'll I'll buy it totally. You know, I didn't even think about the parallels. The parallels. I'm looking more at them. You know, Firestorm with um, Star Spangled Kid is actually kind of cl- and, and the Atom. Both the Atom and Star Spangled Kid are there, and it sort of makes sense because you know Atom is atomic at this point, at least from Earth Two, and Star Spangled Kid was the young guy in the JSA at this point, mm-hmm. and so yeah, that sort of fits with Firestorm. I like that. Yeah, it's great. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. So that's 195. That and all that was just in 195. Right. It goes a little quicker, but yes, that that that's the big setup one. Wow. Okay. All right. 196. 196. So all right, I'm gonna say, and I'm gonna. I, I love the John Beatty stuff. I love the Keith Pollard stuff. This issue for me is the crown jewel. I think Romeo Tengal is. You mentioned you like uh, John Beatty, and I love John Beatty as an inker. I mean, Secret Wars is some of my favorite stuff ever, and he's the inker on that. But for me. Romeo Tangal is the inker for George Perez at this point. I just think every single panel, the detail work is so incredibly illustrated. That, that's just for me. Yeah, I mean, all three of these look really great. Uh, Ryan, Romeo Tangal did a lot of Teen Titans and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. So he was good with Perez. I love the, the, the recap. You know, we have like a little yep. one-panel recap of explaining what the plan is. But this, the, the my favorite part of this issue is the sequence with Our Man and Psycho Pirate. I knew you were going yeah. there, and I totally agree. Yeah, as done by Perez and Romeo Tangle, this is one of those things where this sequence where Psycho Pirate breaks into this dinner and Our Man gets a drop on him. And then there's this amazing part where Our Man realizes if he just doesn't look at Psycho Pirate's face – he can fight him off. So he puts his cape over his face and has to kind of fight him blind. But in the background, you've got Psycho Pirate sort of broadcasting his emotions uh, on these giant screens. And he's trying to, you know, sucker kind of uh, sucker punch Our Man that way. You look at this sequence and you're like, OK, in the history of DC Comics, Our Man has always been definitely B-level. And that maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's even being generous. But as done by Perez and Romeo Tangle here, you're like, I could totally read an Our Man comic book. This is mm-hmm. so beautifully done. Give me more of this. It looks so cool. Well, I think the highlight of it is in, in – I know you, you talked about the panel, but I don't think you described it enough to detail where Psycho Pirate's face is everywhere. It's also – because of the way Perez does the work, it, the, the, it is also projecting onto his cape. It's projecting onto the legs of his costume. Anywhere where it's yellow – in Our Man, you can see Psycho Pirate's face peeking through like it's being reflected off that surface. And it looks stunning. It yeah. looks so good. Especially, you know, again, I'm reading the digital version, so it's all been colored and touched up. It looks – it just completely pops off the page. It's absolutely amazing. It, it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, so I, don't then, remember, I don't remember ever seeing a scene where, like, the villain's face is being plastered on the character's own costume. It's just really clever. Yeah. So in regard to that scene, too, by the way, what Psycho Pirate makes everybody fall asleep. So my question for you, on the emotional spectrum, or maybe even what you know Jeff Johns did with the, with the different rings of the emotional spectrum for the Green Lantern stuff, where does sleepy fall as an emotion? I don't remember <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, well, we got, let's just move on. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, don't look too close. <laughs> yeah. The Batman sequence is great. The opening, the opening panel with Batman where he's swinging through the, the Gotham cityscape and all the buildings are curved. Uh, fish eye lens. Kind of fish eye lens thing looks absolutely amazing. The signal man smashes Batman into the glass, and then he has the the Gothamites turn on Batman. And I love that. That's a great idea that Batman can't fight back because these people are innocent, and so mm-hmm. he just gets ganged up on by like twenty people as he gets slowly gets dragged down. Again, another great sequence. 
Now, by 1985, Batman wouldn't do that. He'd beat the crap out of the people. Yes, but yes, he would. at this point, he's he's the policeman's friend, and that is exactly the way to take him down. Yeah. Uh, the Flash ragdoll sequence oh again. My gosh. Uh, Can yeah, I talk about this one? Yeah, go right ahead. Oh my gosh, this is the one that blew me away the most, actually, in this issue. Because Jay Garrick comes in, and, and I love, by the way, I, I, you probably didn't even notice this, in all of your recaps, in all of your discussions, I love how you you don't even say of Earth 1 or Earth 2. You just say the Flash. Mm-hmm. And you know the person at home may be confused, but it's, in your mind, it's so crystal clear, and I just love that. I, I think it's adorable. That's why I always say Jay Garrick or Earth 2. Hmm. But it's... It's so embedded in you. You know, you, I could describe this comic to you with, without you seeing the issues. You know what I was talking about. You know it so well. Mm-hmm. So, so Jay is there fighting the ragdoll. The ragdoll's hiding in one of those like you know um, exhaust ports on a ship or whatever. And Jay just freaking buzzes his arm right through it and smashes it to pieces. And then he flies down into the cargo hold using his super hand speed stuff. I mean, Jay was a total kick-ass guy at this point he's just amazing because i always see jay as the elder statement on the, the elder statesman you know nowadays you know ever since the 80s that's pretty much jay is always the old guy who's still got it going here he's you know not in his prime he's a little older but they don't they don't even mention his age other than the great temples he's just kicking ass yep. i thought this was awesome yeah it's a great yeah the, him slicing the that uh, that whatever that that exhaust port is, is looks really cool. Oh my it looks gosh, really it's amazing. so cool! So it looks like freaking dangerous. <laughs> yeah, right. It does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the sequence with Adam and Floronic Man again is really good. I mean, it's like, it looks just beautifully done by Perez and Tango, and Adam gets the, all the pollen uh, and it, that knocks him out. And then the sequence with even the sequence with Johnny Thunder is pretty good. Before before you leave Floronic Man, I got a question. So uh, I, I had to look it up. This is before. Alan Moore uh, stole Pl- yes. Floronic Man. Right. So I, I've ne- I, well, I shouldn't say never. I read them, but it's been 25 years probably. You know, when Floronic Man appeared in the earlier Justice League issues, like what, 160 something, I want to say, or whatever. Something like um, that. Was he like this? Like, because he's still sort of creepy and distant from humanity. He, he's still. Uh, he's not an Alan Moore type character yet, but you you can see the germ of it there, where he's got some creepy dialogue. He's very much a part of the human race, a part meaning not part of, but uh, separate from the human race. Was he already like this, or is this Conway leaning into that? I think this is Conway leaning into it, from what I remember. I remember him okay. being more of a standard supervillain, but here he is, kind of like an outcast from society. And uh, when we meet him in the first segment he's hiding you know he's got like a fake skin because right. he, he, he wants to hide what he actually looks like so yeah i think this is uh again this feels like conway went through all these characters and sort of just found interesting angles for them all in a way that nobody really considered like again i mentioned he makes the monocle seem cool i mean that's right. pretty amazing <laughs> you know, Jeff Johns uh, is famous for doing the same thing with villains, but he would have turned this like into a two-issue arc for each one of the villains. You know, Floronic Man would have had two issues leading up to this one encounter, just trying to explain his backstory and how you know different he is than we expected him to be. And that's a dig at Jeff Johns. Sorry, uh, I'm still I'm still smarting from Doomsday Clock. Go ahead. <laughs> so anyway, the sequence with Johnny Thunder is really good, where actually Brainwave uses. His illusion powers to fool Johnny Thunder. Not that that's hard, uh, but he but he tricks Johnny Thunder into thinking that the Thunderbolt has been captured in a little bottle. But it turns out that it's actually an illusion. And we see that Brainwave himself is actually an illusion, of course, because the, the the big strong strapping guy version is not what he really looks like. He really, he really looks like a Doctor Savannah type guy. Right. But he but he uses his mind powers to conjure up a more sort of heroic looking image. And then, of course, I, we get to your favorite sequence, and probably in the whole thing. Well, 
Well, it is, but I want to talk about Brainwave one, okay. one more time. I love that villain, uh, the the superhero, kind of Kirby-looking version of Brainwave. And that was all in the All-Star Comics uh, right. Super Squad run. Right. And it's such a great concept, and it's it's conveyed all here so simply in just an image or two. They don't spend a lot of time dwelling on it. It's like, oh, illusion powers, get it. He's a little dweeby guy. And I, that villain, the, the superheroic version of it, just looks so cool. And uh, to later go on and adopt it for Brainwave Jr. was brilliant. It's just great usage all the way around. Yes. So the scene, the Firestorm scene opens with Ronnie and Doreen, his girlfriend, high school girlfriend, at his parents' house, or at his dad's house, and his dad's not home. So you know what's about to go down with these teenagers unsupervised. It's it's not a good scene. Uh, in some regards, it's probably best that he got out of there. Um, they're they're going to play video games, right? Uh, I'm sure that's exactly what they're going to do on the couch right. by themselves. Okay. That's exactly what I did in high school. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, as usual, uh, things go awry for Ronnie the Professor, which is always the best way to have a, a Firestorm story. Ronnie's, you know, night with Doreen gets interrupted. Professor Stein is eating this fancy food called fettuccine Alfredo, uh, <laughs> something, you know, new to New York at this point, probably. And, uh, and of course, you know, I, I love this bit where it's like, Ronald, I hope you realize that was the first decent meal I've had in months. Is this important? <laughs> And he goes, is Killer Moth important? My boy, I will say no more. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Because they can't waste a lot of time like they do in Fury of Firestorm where they, Ronnie and the Professor bicker for, you know, pages at a time. they got to get it out of the way in one panel, which Don't works you just, I think you just said, is Killer Moth important? Oh, did I? Oh, I said Killer Moth. <laughs> I may have. Because the, I, the answer to that would be no. <gasps> Don't say that. Stella would be heartbroken. I, oh, are you kidding? She's not listening to this. <laughs> So uh, that's probably true. So yes, the Battle of Killer Frost is great. I mean, Frost has set a trap. Uh, Firestorm keeps thinking that Frost is missing her. She keeps shooting past him, but really reality is she is freezing the ceiling so that it will collapse on Firestorm and she wins the day out there. Uh, It's great. It's only, what, one, you know, uh, one, two... Two and a half pages, or maybe three if you look at it that way. And it's fantastic. It's such a great use of Firestorm. It's such a great use for Killer Frost. It shows that she's capable. She outthinks the hero. And uh, I absolutely love that scene. And again, going back to the Ronnie and Doreen thing, I've just it cracks me up that Jerry was willing to put that in the comic about these two people alone in the house. And uh, anyway, fun stuff. I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that of all the characters, Firestorm gets like the most lead up into his sequence more than anybody yeah, possibly. else. Yeah. Possibly. Possibly. But you know, hey, I'll, oh I'll no, that's not get. a criticism. Sure, I mean, he, his character. Why would he not do that? You know. Well, and he wasn't appearing anywhere else right. at this point. That's it. Uh, the flashbackups, I don't believe. Um, well, actually, yeah, the flashbackups had happened by this point. I take that back because uh, Perez's actually. I don't. I don't know if you know this. Perez's very first work for DC was on the Firestorm backups. Yeah, I think we covered that. Oh, uh, we probably did. Yeah, I didn't think did we were the backups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know about that, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I have somebody take notes for me. Uh, the the sequence with Superman is great. I love that. Just somebody writes in graffiti, bring me Superman on a rock. And that, that brings him in, and he's just standing there watching, like, what's going on? And then, again, he gets attacked by Ultra Humanite and the other apes. But, of course, Ultra Humanite has the kryptonite whammy waiting for him in his chest plate, and that knocks Superman out. And then it ends with them all putting in these little stasis chambers, and they vibrate into uh, basically nothingness. And that's the end of the issue. Again, another great It's an amazing second chapter. Yes, it's really well done. It's great paced. Lots of little vignettes, so you see lots of little fights. Again, I think as far as the look, I think the the combination of the inking and penciling team is just outstanding. Uh, One little art touch I love in the the end, and it's it's stupid, but it just – I love it, where Earth 2 Superman has been blasted with a kryptonite aerosol can basically, and – his costume, look, everything looked exactly normal. Like if you were, if you removed the green color, he would look normal, except the S has been covered so much that you can't see it. 
Yeah, that's an interesting detail. It's yeah. an interesting touch, but I, I, I kind of dig it. I really like it. So, I don't know. It looks different. So, all right. We scream into the third issue. All right. You, uh, this one's a little different. So, Keith Pollard. So, you specifically said Keith Pollard helped with the penciling. I wasn't sure because it just says Jerry Conway, Keith Pollard, and George Perez are the writers, storytellers, and pencilers. So, is, is that what he did? Or or, or did maybe Keith, um, George do some breakdowns and Keith – uh, penciled it. I don't know. What, what do you do? You know, or are you just I, guessing? I, I'm, or what? I'm guessing, but just be, to me, some of these pages don't look like they were drawn by Perez. They look like they were mm-hmm. drawn by Keith Pollard, and Romeo Tangel inked everything, so it gave it a, a smoother look. But I think there are some pages that you can, I would argue, you can spot are more obviously Perez than some others. Well, I would say like, and, and what leaves me wondering is like, Ultra Humanite's face is a perfect example. Ultra Humanite's face, like, let's just look at the splash page. Okay, everyone looks pretty much on model from Perez's work except for Ultra Humanite. Mm-hmm. He looks really odd. And some of that continues throughout where a lot of the characters look like Perez perfect, but Ultra Humanite doesn't. So again, that's why I kind of thought maybe breakdowns and I don't know. It's possible. I just don't know. I'm, I'm, I could be wrong. I don't have any fact. I just sort of looked at it and thought some of these pages look a little more perez than others. But right, he might have just done breakdowns and maybe on some pages did a little more detailed breakdowns than others. It's definitely more Keith Pollard than Perez for this chapter. Yeah. Of the three, I hate to say it's the weakest because it's still better than, you know, 80% of other comics I want to read. But it it is probably the weakest of the three. Uh, But it's still very, very, very good. We do do talk about the cover too, which has got all the heroes oh, looking yeah. really mad. Superman waving, Superman waving his fist, and Batman waving his fist, which is great. And this is everything you want because, of course, you've you've been reading the previous two issues of the heroes getting their asses kicked. So now mm-hmm. you're in the third chapter, like, oh yeah, this is what I want. I want to I want to see the bad guys better get their asses handed to them uh, by the JLAers and JSAers. So that's a great sequence. As I said I like the this double page uh, sequence of. The Ultra Humanite saying, okay, everybody's getting disappeared. There's another great recap where we get a little curve panels, meaning flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we right. see all everybody's, you know, we, they talk about Firestorm gets, def- gets defeated by Killer Frost, Cheetah and Wonder Woman, Monocle and Hawkman, the whole bit. And then, of course, the mind-bending reality thing happens. And like I mentioned in the recaps, it's like only in the world of the DC Universe do people just have to live with this. Like right. for a couple of seconds, reality bent out of shape and everything got curvy. And then it's like, all right, just go back to your jobs, everybody. It's fine. <laughs> well, it's sort of like, you know, uh, in our world nowadays, we have to deal with some ridiculous, whichever side you're on, some ridiculous news cycle because the president has said something on Twitter. And whichever side you're on, it doesn't matter. Either way, it causes a bunch of chaos. That's how often crazy crap like this happens in the DC universe, where it's like, oh, look, you know, Coast City just got destroyed. You know, or the world just warped because of that, or you know, red skies. I mean, this stuff happens every couple minutes. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's just right. It's just like okay, just, just, everything's back to normal. So of course, again, now we find out that the villains have realized that the, the Earth One villains are like this has been a plan all along. All oh, you guys were never once going to even remotely. It was never. There was no chance it was going to be Earth One. I love that it never occurs to Killer Frost or Signal Man or Floronic Man. Uh, or signal man just to go live on earth two like earth two yeah. has earth two has no heroes just go live there but instead well, yeah, but their home their home is earth one now okay i'm gonna ask you well you finish your thought i'm sorry I well, i'm just you. saying it's like if you're a super villain i would say you'd want to go live on the planet with no villain no superhero you know they don't explore that enough like 
did, did this change that there were never heroes on Earth 2? Or there just aren't any anymore? I mean, did Huntress, I guess, just vanished is what happened? You know, that kind of it was like Thanos. They just snapped them and snapped, they were gone. Uh, yeah. Could be, okay. Uh, but you have to interpret that yourself. So, Rob, of, it, of the third part of the story, who is the hero of this story, of, of issue three, or segment three? Who's the hero? Yeah, who's the protagonist of this issue? I'm not... I... I guess would I'm not sure what you're asking. You seem like you want a particular answer. What what are you I looking do, for? I do. The the hero or the protagonist of the third part of the story throughout the entire issue is Killer Frost. She does do a lot, yeah. She is the main character of this entire issue. If you really look at it from starting with issue, with page six and going on till almost the end of the book, she is the the she's who you're following. It's her story. She's leading the villains. She's telling the villains to do this and to do that and to fix things to try and make everything right again. Now she's doing it for selfish reasons, but she's the protagonist. She comes up I with a plan. That. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's fanta- a fantastic spotlight for her, and I think this actually helped her popularity quite a bit. I like that uh, when she's laying on the ground and Signal Man reaches out to pick her up, and she she encases his hand, and but she's like, mm-hmm. keep your hand to yourself, Signal Man, or lose it. And his face, and he's like, oh, okay, a little bit touchy. Uh, and then she storms off, and then she, she's the one who's like, I just must get revenge. Well, there was something in the first part, too, I want to say, where someone called her beautiful or something like that. And she, she you know, because she hates men. That, that's her yeah. shtick at this point. And so she gets, she got on somebody's case in the first one, too. Probably the most disturbing thing in this, this issue is Brainwave, where he goes and essentially mm. kidnaps this female actress and makes her fall in love with him. And you don't really want to think about what maybe he did. It's, yeah, it's pretty yeah. horrible. It's horrible if you stop and really think about it. Uh, I do like the sequence of the, the the villain stealing the frozen Green Lantern and using yes. using him as as their transport. And they, I like that. That's how the JLA satellites work. You can you can just literally have like a frozen Green Lanternicle and it'll work, <laughs> and they can beam them up to the satellite. And of course, and then they blast the elongated man in two seconds, and they take over. And I I love that after they blast the elongated man, Cheetah mm-hmm. is like, "Let me kill him. He's one of them." And Killer Frost uh, is like, I sympathize, Cheetah. All men deserve death or worse, but we are here for another purpose. Like, whoa, okay. Very disturbing. Very disturbing. Yeah, it, since we're talking about Killer Frost, and I, I got to say, go back to page seven real quick, which is the page where she freezes uh, Signal Man's hand. Mm-hmm. Look at the top right-hand panel, and she looks like she's made of ice there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just they did such an exceptional job with the, the colors and the highlights and j- just that line across the face and the, and the light bouncing off of it she looks like she's made of ice that is so cool she's gonna break in to let it go at any moment she, you know she just might <laughs> so i i love what happens here when they go to the other world and cheetah is the one who saves the day the, the essentially what they call the powerless one although i've never thought of her as powerless but she's the one who jumps on the the centrifugal spinny thing and puts a stop to it just because she's so pissed at wonder woman that's really cool i like how they have to gin her up too killer frost yeah. is like she can succeed where we have failed. Cheetah, Wonder Woman, your mortal enemy is in one of those tubes. Will you let her escape your wrath or will you have revenge? I love that. <laughs> they, they talk her into it. And then Cheetah eventually does it, smashes it, and then they break them open. And then I love that it's uh, Signal Man and, and uh, Jason Woodrow that are like, um, there's one aspect of your plan you haven't really explained. Once we free the heroes, uh, what do we do now? And then, of course, there's that one giant panel where they just get all their asses kicked right. by uh, by the heroes. And I love because there are more heroes than there are villains, they double up. And there's this 
in this great sequence where Johnny Thunder has got his arms wrapped around Signalman and Hawkman is just punching the living crap out of him. He's he's pulling his costume towards like he's got a fistful of costume and then slugging him with the other one. Oh my gosh, it's so good. <laughs> there's also uh, in my copy there's the uh, NBC Superstar Saturday Pow ad which we talked about in the, nice. in the Saturday morning episode. But that's a great so, so the way they were teeing up uh, Cheetah reminds me a lot about you when I'm trying to fill dead air and I just go there's no Earthy Aquaman that's and true. then suddenly you're off on a rant and it works it, it works every time I'm too stupid well there wasn't to, one yeah uh, so. <laughs> Stop it. So uh, <laughs> anyway, so then you can, then there's the big sequence at the end on an Earth two where all the supervillains have been rounded up and they think that it's ultra humanite uh, is the one that did it. And it is you mentioned the thing with Brainwave where he has basically subjugated this actress. Oh. He actually literally brings her with him. Yes, and he as has his slave on he has her his knees. slave on her knees, which is like. Horrible, absolutely yes. horrible. Oh my god! And then again, then when they're all like, "Hey, ultra human, I why'd you call this meeting?" And he's like, "I didn't call the meeting." And they go to you know, villain by villain, and they're like, "What? No, no." And they're all like, "No, no, no." Even Brainwave goes, "I've got better things to do." Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. And they're all like, "No, no, no." And then finally, you've got Firestorm with the lie. You uh, did the line. It was I cannot tell a lie, ape face. It was us. And then there's this. Big full page shot of all of our heroes, and even in this moment, even Batman doesn't want the fight to end quickly. Batman's like, "Please don't come quietly." I, love I that. know that is like such a crazy line for him. Now I have to ask you because you do you have the physical comic in front of you right now? Yes. Okay, uh, I, I'm reading digital, so I don't know. But do you have to flip the page to get to the splash page of the heroes there, or is it a right facing page? It's a oh I'm sorry I have scans in front of me I didn't know oh, the okay. actual right. comics so yeah I don't know because there, there's a real power to having it was one of the things that's unique to comic books which is the power of having to flip the mm-hmm. page mm-hmm. and then getting a kapow moment and this is a real kapow moment and, and again I, if anyone's got their physical copy at home they're looking at let me know because again I'm looking at the digital version I, where you know you hear. I cannot tell a lie, ape face, and it's off panel. You're like, who's saying that? And just the flip, and you get that express, you get that sense when you're flipping digital. You're like, oh wow, and yeah, that is such a great panel of all the Justice League right there, and they have like they're gleefully ready to kick ass. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Superman punches Ultra Humanite in kind of what looks like in the crotch. Uh, which is probably immensely painful. Uh, Our Man figures out a good way to take out Psycho Part by hitting him kind of reverse, hitting him uh, while looking the other direction. Backstroke. Uh, backstroke, yeah. Black Canary blasts the mists where he's like even his head is pounding and stuff like that. Meanwhile, I love that he's keeping them all distracted. Meanwhile, you've got Batman, Wonder Woman, and the Atom working on this tube. And Firestorm is like, hey, uh, isn't that the Gizmo Killer Frost described? The one that she said transport us into limo? And Wonder Woman is like, keep it down. And you, she's literally doing the shh thing as the plan. And of course, Firestorm, because he's not paying attention, almost gets sucked into the beam himself as it <laughs> shoots up right in front of him, which I think is a nice detail. And this, and it's this page that features probably my single favorite moment of the book in terms of the villain, the superheroes being cool. And that is where the Flash is just knocking Ragdoll up and down on the floor. And he's Ragdoll, being what he is, is bouncing off the floor, back up into the Flash. Flash is punching him and knocking him back down again. And he's just doing the but da but da but da but da I just, it's a, he's, I it's a boxing it. bag, this yeah. Yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love it. And so they blast them all into the train, into the well, uh, beam. We've got to go back and talk about Firestorm. All right, so this is the only thing that bothers me about the crossover and has bothered me actually for since I read it, which was, I don't know, whatever I said 20 years ago, since the first time I read it, this has always bothered me is that the Justice League is here. They're kicking all the ass, right? Firestorm's job is to float in the air Indian style 
and do nothing. He says, I'm keeping an eye on them bats just like we planned. You've got – sorry, Superman and everyone else. You have the single most powerful member of the Justice <laughs> League who has the power – basically wish fulfillment power to create anything. And yet you've got folks you know, out there like Our Man who, or Johnny Thunder who are you know, pretty much minor guys compared to what Firestorm can accomplish. And it's just like why didn't you just have Firestorm put them all on a block of concrete or something or a block of Prometheum or something? It's it, Just having him float there always bothered me. And yet it was written by Firestorm's creator, so you can't, you know, it's not like a, if, there's, if there's any writer that can be excused for not using Firestorm's potential, it's his creator. It's not like it's oh, somebody absolutely. else that doesn't like him and giving him short drift. Well, it's interesting. It's almost like it, it's, it doesn't make sense in a battle perspective. However, if you're going to sideline him, making him Indian style to like it just totally sells home how relaxed he is, is actually pretty funny. You mm-hmm. know, if you're going to say... Yeah, the hero's not doing anything, and I literally show him basically benched uh, in such a way by Indian style makes it pretty darn good. Yeah, and then so our man pulls Psycho Pirate's cape up over his face and throws him into the teleportation beam. Johnny Thunder actually gets something done and knocks Brainwave into the thing, <laughs> which then knocks into the monocle. And so they do, they do two birds with one stone. And then, of course, Ultra Humanite is, you won't take me without a struggle. I still have super knowledge. And Superman's like, yeah, whatever. Bam. And just knocks Ultra <laughs> Humanite into thing. And not only does not, they don't just turn the machine off. Batman rips the wires out. Yeah. That's <laughs> it, pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, and then the final page is on Earth-1. And all our gel layers have uh, reconnoitered back up with Green Lantern and Elongated Man. And they talk about, you know... But the Cheat and Sigma and the other villains, a court will have to decide punishment for, for their crimes. But in the meantime, they won't be bothering anybody for a long, long while. And they're all in limbo chasing after the Ultra Humanite in almost like it's a mad, 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 mad world style. Where it's got this, <laughs> oh, you can hear the Benny Hill music. It's an amazingly lighthearted final panel for these three, for this three issue. Right. And they never revisit how these guys get out. I mean, they don't need to because it's it's villains. That's how it works. They get out. But because, you know, Killer Frost is going to show up not too long from here in, in Firestorm's book. But, um, yeah, it's – oh, God. So, overall, three issues of absolutely fun, gorgeous superhero comics. I – I can't express enough how much joy are in these pages. Yeah, this is this is such a fun sequence. Conway is just again taking some really low level characters and doing so much with them, handing it over to Perez, who does a great job. Keith Pollard does a good job in the final issue. Uh, it features just a bunch of really great sequences. It really does make you appreciate that the, the the depth of the DC bench and that even characters as silly looking potentially as Ragdoll, the Monocle, or Brainwave can be, when done right, can be really, really effective. Yeah. And you think about it, like, you also have to wonder how much did this influence later stories where, again, uh, you know, Killer Frost got more screen time. The Mist, who later on would go on to be a huge deal in Starman. Ragdoll, who would go who would go on to be a big deal in Starman as well. And then later Secret Six. Floronic Man, who gets picked up for a Swamp Thing. you got to wonder how much these later crea- creators, was this the book where they first came across that character? And said, you know, I could do something with that. And then figured out how to connect all the dots and make something amazing. I don't know. Yeah. And then Signalman, of course, who's a huge deal. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, wait. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> no, I lo- yeah, this, sto- this, this story is just – it's just so much fun. I love it. And that's, like I said, that's why I can't believe we didn't get around. We haven't gotten around to it. Again, especially yep. when it features Firestorm, so, Firestorm and one of his villains so prominently. <laughs> you know, this might be the last time that we saw the Secret Society of Supervillains until like the 2000s, I think. Um, mm. I don't 
remember them. I might be forgetting something, but I mean, until you get till around the era of uh, Infinite Crisis and that kind of time frame, I don't remember the the Secret Society being around. It does seem like a name that that anybody just sort of takes because it seems like any group of villains can just decide we're the Secret Society of Supervillains now. Right. Well, that and the Injustice Gang or whatever. Yeah, that's it. Anybody's allowed to have those access access to those names. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's, it's it, I don't know. I just love these comics, just uh, yeah, backwards and forwards. Yep. So I, I I've exhausted everything I have to say. I've run out of superlatives to explain about this book, other than go read it for goodness sakes, folks. And if you did read it years ago, like me, go back and reread it, and I think you'd be like, wow. I even though you remember being good, you'd forgotten how good it was. And you can of course check out some of the images. We'll have it on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, Some of the beautiful pages from these books. Absolutely. So, uh, and you know, go to our website, leave us your thoughts in the comments. Tell us how much you love these issues. Tell us which one of the ones you think is the, which issue has the best inking, which is the great best panel, which is the best takedown of a hero or a villain. We want to hear it in the comments at firewaterpodcast.com. Go over to the shows tab and look for the Aquaman and Firestorm show and let us know. In the meantime, you can also find us on social media as firewater podcast on both Facebook and Twitter. You can look at, what 94% of all the other Twitter accounts are Rob, so you can just pick anyone at random. Or just I, go with Aquaman. You can go with Aquaman Shrine if you really want to be specific. I haven't, I haven't created any new handles in a while. I've been slowing down. Well, Rob's been busy, apparently. And then uh, you can find me as Firestorm Fan on both Facebook and Twitter as well. So I think that's going to do it, Rob. That's going to do it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the suggestion. This was a great idea. So. Again, I will never turn down to talk about classic JLA comics. I was always <laughs> going to be up for that. All right, folks. Until next time, fan the flame and ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. So come down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a land in air. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah. Would you like to come up and see my etchings? <laughs> That has been recognized as a sexual come-on for so long that in the 1930s, James Thurber drew a New Yorker cartoon in which a man says to his date, you wait here and I'll bring the etchings down. (laughs) 